Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is episode 13, Staying Alive. Today we're going to jump into the deep end and look at something I've been dancing around and avoiding for a while, lifetimes. I've been thinking about this episode for a long time, nearly since the start of the show, in fact, and frankly, I've been dreading it for most of that time. Lifetimes have just seemed really hard to me. However, I have good news for you, and that good news comes in three parts. One, you can do this. Seriously. Lifetimes are a bit of a challenge, but they're far from impossible. I've figured them out, at least well enough to get by, and you can too. Second, you don't have to think about them all that often. We'll talk about the specific times you do have to think about them as we go along, but for now, suffice it to say that in a lot of Rust code, lifetimes are handled for you. That's because, number three, the compiler is really smart. As I mentioned in episode 12, when talking about Rust's type system in general, the compiler can figure out the lifetimes for you a lot of the time. And when it's not allowed to elide the lifetime, because it might get something important wrong, the compiler can still often tell you exactly what you need to put in to make that lifetime explicit. So, it turns out, this won't be as bad as I was afraid it was after all. Let's dig in. If you listened to that episode on types, you'll recall that I described lifetimes as being part of Rust's type system. In fact, they are kind of like a generic, which we talked about back in episode 8. Because of that, we write generic types and lifetime annotations very similarly, so we'll start there before thinking about how we have to reason about lifetimes. You type a lifetime whether putting it on a function or on a type, with less than and greater than symbols around a lifetime specifier, just like you would around a generic type specifier. So the same way you might describe a function as being generic over some type t by writing fn foo bracket t bracket, and then specifying that one of its arguments was of type t, you do the same kind of thing with a lifetime specifier. Lifetime specifiers, though, get a special kind of label syntax, a single apostrophe followed by the name of the label for that lifetime. So, in a full function definition, that might look something like fn space foo less than sign apostrophe a greater than sign open parentheses some int reference colon ampersand apostrophe a space i32, close parentheses. Whew, that's a lot of syntax. When you see it, it's a lot easier to read, but honestly, lifetimes are still a lot of syntax. So let's break that down in case you missed part of it, which I really wouldn't blame you if you did. We have a normal function statement, fn foo, and we have the same angle brackets we'd have with a generic. But inside, instead of having something like a capital T, we have a label spelled apostrophe A. That same label goes right after the ampersand that says we have a reference when we're defining the type of the argument to the function. That specifies which argument gets the lifetime that we declared in the function name. We could have more than one lifetime specifier if we had more than one reference argument, and we'd just attach them in the same way, just like we would with multiple generic types. One note, if you have a mutable reference, which we normally spell ampersand mute, the lifetime specifier goes between the ampersand and the keyword, 
So ampersand apostrophe A space mute. If you're like me, you're wondering why A for this lifetime label? The answer is it's just a convention. It's actually similar to what you'd see for type arguments in languages like Haskell. To keep lifetime labels brief, though, we usually just use letters of the alphabet, starting with A and cycling forward. And to make it easy to distinguish them from generics, we use lowercase letters, so apostrophe A, apostrophe B, and so on. There's one major exception to this, but we'll talk about that a little later in the episode. As an aside, I keep calling them lifetime labels because they share their syntax with another kind of label in Rust, loop labels. If you are in a nested loop and need to be able to specify whether to break out of the inner or outer loop with the break or continue keywords, you use a label spelled something like apostrophe inner or apostrophe outer on the start of the loop, and that's what you use with the break or continue keywords, break apostrophe inner, for example. So what are lifetimes exactly? They're Rust's way of letting us reason about and specify how long a given set of data is available, and therefore how long the references to it can be valid. To put it another way, every piece of data has some time where it's alive, quote-unquote, and a point after that where it gets cleaned up and touching the memory where that data lived would be unsafe. That period where it's safe to touch the memory that backs a given piece of data, a given item, whether to read from that memory or to change whatever is in that memory, is the lifetime of that data, of that item. You can sum this up with two rules. One, all items have lifetimes. The lifetime of any given item is just the block that owns that item. Two, References to an item are only valid as long as the item is alive. The normal behavior of an item, then, is to be allocated on its creation, to live until the end of the block in which it was created, and then be deallocated. It only stays alive after that if you move it to a different block, which you can do by returning it from a function, or passing it to a different thread, or something like that. Once it has been moved, the same rules apply in that new block context. At the end of that block, it will be deallocated. Now, you might be thinking, fine, but that all just applies to stack-allocated data, right? What about heap-allocated data? Good question. As it turns out, the same basic rules apply, just with the container item being the item that's tracked for deallocation. So, for a smart pointer type, a generic box type, or a generic reference counted type, or so on, or for types like vectors, it's the smart pointer or the container which gets tracked with these lifetimes. But once that goes out of scope, it gets deallocated, and the heap-allocated memory it's pointing to gets deallocated as well. Ownership rules and lifetimes apply to heap-allocated types just as much as to stack-allocated types. Now, you may have noticed when I was talking through that example above, with all that complicated syntax, that I applied the lifetime specifically to a reference. Why is that? It's because we only have to spell out lifetimes for references. This is your first bit of really good news. Any code which isn't dealing with references also doesn't have to worry about specifying lifetimes, because in that case, there are only two things that can happen. One, you get to the end of the block, the item goes out of scope, and it gets cleaned up. 
Two, you move an item which doesn't have any outstanding references to it out of that block in some way. Note that there are safety guarantees for moves. If you try to move an item and there are outstanding references to it, the compiler won't allow the move unless it's safe. Let's get concrete with an example of how things could go wrong if we didn't have lifetime checking. Imagine you're writing in C, and you declare a pointer and allocate some memory to it. A little later, you free that memory, and then, forgetting that you freed it, you try to access the data in the pointer again later. The thing is, that behavior is wildly unpredictable. It might appear at least to work. It might not. The data might still be sitting there exactly as you left it, or it might have had something else written to that chunk of memory. The compiler knows that you said, free this up, so it knows the memory address that pointer had is available, and it will make it available to other things that need memory. But of course, nothing stops you from accessing that pointer's address in C. And of course, you can make the same mistake in C++. Nothing in the language stops you from having a pointer to an object that was already destroyed, regardless of how it was destroyed, whether it ran a destructor explicitly, or it just got cleaned up by going out of scope, or even if you explicitly freed the memory. This is the classic dangling pointer problem, and if I had gotten a bonus for every one of these I have found and fixed in my career to date, I'd be doing pretty well for myself financially. In Rust, unlike in C or C++, something does stop you from accessing a dangling pointer's address, the part of the compiler often referred to as the borrow checker. When you have a reference to a piece of data, you have to provide guarantees that the data will still be around when you're referencing it. Because of this, again, every object in Rust has a lifetime. Accordingly, every reference in Rust has a lifetime, and Rust lets us and sometimes requires us to be explicit about those lifetimes so that we don't end up in the world of hurt that we would with, you know, dangling pointers. Gladly, as I noted above, we don't have to write lifetimes every time. As I mentioned in the type system episode, the compiler can, and very often does, elide them for us. In many cases, you can pass references into a function with no worries about lifetimes at all. But there are a few cases where you do have to write the lifetime. First, functions which return references. In that case, the lifetime of the returned data must match the lifetime of an input, or it must be the static lifetime. We'll talk about static lifetimes in a moment. Second, data types which have reference members. Structs or enums and any functions which deal with them will need lifetime specifiers. And therefore, as you can imagine, third, implementation blocks for those data types also will have to have lifetime specifiers in at least some cases. Let's go through each of those. Any function which returns a reference has to have a lifetime on that return type, and that lifetime must match a lifetime on an input type or be static. The reason is that the Rust compiler doesn't intrinsically have any way to know what the lifetime of that reference is supposed to be otherwise. References, after all, can be fairly arbitrary things. To use an arbitrary reference coming out of a function safely, the compiler has to be able to specify how long it will live relative to something it presumably does know about already, like, say, a reference going into the function. Saying, this reference must last just as long as that reference you already know about, lets the compiler perform its safety checks, and, nicely, give you a compile time error if you lied, or of course, more likely, were just confused, about how long that returned reference really lives. 
For example, if you declare a new item within a block and try to return just a reference to it, it won't matter if you specify the lifetime. It still won't compile because the lifetime guarantee you've written doesn't actually hold in that case. Remember, the normal lifetime of a given object is just the lifetime of the block that owns it. So you can return a reference to a part of an item you passed in or to something you moved out of the function in some way besides returning it by sending it to another thread, for example. But you can't return a reference to something that's gone out of scope already. That would be a dangling pointer. And the whole point of lifetimes is to avoid those kinds of bugs. Given that, you can probably see why data types with references also need lifetimes. You have to specify, relative to the life of the struct or enum itself, how long things referenced inside of it live. Let's say, for example, that you wanted to use string references rather than the full-on string type in your struct. And if the differences between those two isn't clear, don't worry. That happens to almost everyone with Rust, and it's actually going to be the focus of our next episode. In any case, since those are references, they need to have their lifetime specified relative to the container. In that case, they should normally all be the same. The string references should last exactly the same amount of time as the container itself does. You wouldn't want the references used for a person's name on a person struct to stop being available before the person instance was. But while that's a simple example, you can think of scenarios where different items in a given struct or enum might have different behaviors around them. And when that struct interacts with methods on those types, which also have lifetimes, suddenly there's a bit more to juggle. And that exact scenario is one of the places lifetimes might save you. If you have lifetimes declared on some struct members and another set of lifetimes declared on a method in an implementation block, then you can reason explicitly about how those lifetimes need to interact with each other, and the compiler can enforce those rules for you. This is the upside. You can say, these properties need to be valid for at least as long as this instance is, otherwise I can't trust the struct, and if a method tries to hand over references which won't live that long, the code simply won't compile. This is the kind of thing that I've seen go wrong frequently in C and C++ code, because the only escape from these problems is incredibly careful defensive programming. But the compiler doesn't miss things, like you or I might, and it doesn't forget about particular defensive programming patterns, like you or I might. Method lifetimes and struct property lifetimes may be a little extra work to write, but when they save you, you'll be really glad to have the tool in place. One last thing to touch on briefly is the static lifetime. Items with static lifetimes are in scope for the whole time the program is running. So, for example... If you have a constant string slice in a module, it will always have a static lifetime. Other types will have these too. You should use them sparingly, though. Static lifetimes are great when you need them, but it, of course it's fairly easy to think of ways to abuse them when reasoning about lifetimes. Don't do that. Use them where they're appropriate, but don't overuse them. Now, I was looking around for examples of places where you can see this illustrated fairly simply, and I noticed that there are lifetimes in use even on the basic walkthrough page for the diesel ORM. Yes, Sean, if you're listening, hi, you can add this to your count of times you get mentioned on the show. Beyond the samples I've written up for the show notes, then, I'll link both to the basic diesel tutorial and to its API docs. Both places you'll see quite a few data structures and methods which require the use of lifetimes. You may also find it helpful to poke around in the standard library or in other high-profile projects like Mio. 
reading and writing real-world code is incredibly helpful for getting a handle on these kinds of things. And that's all we have time for for today. Lifetimes will continue to come up, of course, so we'll discuss them as appropriate as we go along. In the next episode, I'll be talking about strings in Rust, how they work and why they're a bit complicated, and hopefully how you can understand them so they won't feel quite so complicated. Thanks to Hamza Sheikh, Chris Palmer, and Vesa Kailaverta for sponsoring the show this month. You can see a full list of sponsors in the show notes. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash neurostation, or give a one-off contribution at Venmo, Dwala, or Cash.me. You can find links to each of those, to other things mentioned on the show, and notes and code samples at neurostation.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter, at neurostation, or follow me there, at Chris Kreitcho. If you're enjoying the show, please let others know about it. The best ways you can do that are rating and reviewing it on iTunes, recommending it in another podcast directory, or just telling a friend. I also enjoy hearing your feedback. Please do send me your questions, comments, clarifications, and just friendly hellos on social media. You can also reach out in the thread for the episode on the Rust user forum at users.rust-lang.org, or you can send me an email at hello at newrustation.com. Until next time, happy coding.